This is the Beyond the Studio podcast. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can now make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about. Just click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through IAM are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to share what you're learning beyond the studio, please consider submitting to our listener spotlight to be featured on our social media channels. It's also the best way to pitch yourself to be a guest on the show. Just follow the link in our show notes or on the contact page of our website, beyondthe.studio. And uh, thanks for listening. All right. Well, on today's episode of Beyond the Studio, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Marie Watt. Marie, thanks for joining us on the podcast, first of all. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, I'm probably against your wishes going to read just a little bit of your bio uh, because we were just talking about off script about how, you know, the artist bio can feel like a sort of you know, overly formal, prepackaged version of what our life as an artist looks like. But what we're really here to get into today is all of the behind the scenes and really dive into your story. So I'll just briefly share uh, that Marie Watt is an American artist. She's a member of the Seneca Nation of Indians and also has German Scott ancestry. And her work is really interdisciplinary and draws from history, biography, Iroquois proto-feminism, and indigenous teachings. Uh, she's exploring the intersection of history, community, and storytelling. Uh, She holds an MFA in painting and printmaking from Yale University and has received fellowships from places like the Joan Mitchell Foundation, Ford Family Foundation, um, done residencies at places like Skowhegan and the Vermont Studio Center, and exhibited her work all over the country. And we are just so grateful uh, that she's willing to take the time uh, to share more about her creative journey and more of the behind the scenes of what it really looks like to sustain a life as an artist. So... Thanks again, Marie, for being here. Thank you. This is one of my favorite subjects um, to talk about in some ways. So yes, thank you again. Oh, fantastic. Um, well, ours too. So this should be a great conversation. I, I was hoping to start out, and I know we'll get into all of um, the work that you're doing present day, but I'm always really curious to go back in time and hear a little bit from artists about what some of those early days were like, um, maybe when you've first finished graduate school or kind of wherever you'd like to start, but just with some of your earlier ideas of what it looked like to build or sustain a career in the arts, what was for you at that time? Uh, you know, what, what other ways were you supporting your creative practice and, you know, kind of taking us back in time to tell us a little bit of what your initial early career looked like? I would like to share that I did not go straight to get my MFA. I uh, went first from my undergraduate uh, program where I had both a degree in communications and kind of art and went on to the Institute of American Indian Arts where I could just kind of delve in deeper 
uh, into the process of making. And at that time, I was really looking at museum studies too. And then I eventually uh, went on to the MFA program at Yale. And I think when I graduated, I guess uh, teaching seemed like the obvious way to start paying off my loans for graduate school. And so I had actually, I had, actually had a mentor who taught at a community college and I looked into that teaching path. And so I taught uh, at Portland Community College for a decade. And one of the things that I did while I was there is I taught a class called Art of Skills and Practical Issues. And at that time, I was thinking a lot about how to balance the practice of being an artist and an educator and finding time in one studio when you're working 40 hours a week at a day job. And I think that teaching this class, Artist Skills and Practical Issues, really kind of helped me consider what the it helped me reflect more on the business aspect of being an artist. And I think that, you know, when we check that box in art school or in art school or any school, I went to a liberal arts program, but when we check that box that we're thinking of um, becoming an artist, I don't think that we really think that we're also checking that box that of being a small business person. And that's one of the things that I realized really quickly that goes into being an artist. And so one of the questions I like to ask my students is, what do you think the job skills are for an artist? And I think sometimes people come up with words like creativity. <laughs> and unfortunately, like that's that's not really going to help us. Like, I think that yes, there's creativity involved in the practice of being an artist, but that but that's not necessarily like the job itself. And so what I started to realize quickly though is, you know, the job is that we need to have like carpentry skills and uh we need good writing skills and uh, grant writing skills, possibly bookkeeping skills, all these things, honestly, yeah. I dread. Uh, good communication skills, public speaking skills, photography skills, like, you know, mm -hmm. all of these things in time, like maybe if you have the fiscal resources, you know, you can hire people to help you with these different things. But in the very beginning, there's so much of it that you have to do on your own. I mean, even framing your work, right? Mm -hmm. And so I quickly realized in teaching this class, one of the things that I would do at the very end is uh, bring in an accountant and we talk about bookkeeping and, and how to kind of set up your books as an artist. And, you know, that a lot of things that you actually consume um, are part of your research and, and that those are things that you can write off, right? So like mm -hmm. going to the movies, your um, Spotify account actually your uh, New York Times, like your New York, New York Times newspaper account, like all of these different yes. things that you could actually like kind of write off as research, even um, like if we were like now out for for coffee for this interview, like that would also be something that that could become part of our expenses. And I think what I was able to do over time is I could see that I was maybe one year I made $300, but I could also see that I was I might have spent $3,000 in studio rent. And maybe I made a certain amount, we'll say 10 or 20,000 from grants and fellowships. And so over time, I was like able to track my expenses and see how every year I was making just a little bit more income. And I eventually applied to have a sabbatical. And when I came back, I was at this point where I started to think, oh, maybe I can do this 
this full time. And, and it also actually coincided with the birth of our daughter. And so I think we were, my husband and I were really trying to figure out the balance between the expense we would pay for childcare versus me staying home and mm-hmm. also maybe putting that energy that was being more focused on teaching, bringing it back to the studio. And so it was a gradual evolution, but it was also, um, it feels like by the time I decided to make this switch and kind of cut myself away from the safety net that was teaching full-time, I felt like I was kind of more prepared to do it. Yeah, it's so fascinating to hear too that in teaching some of these skill sets and in teaching your students how to start thinking about their practice in this way that you were able to um, apply that same thinking to your own work. And then that was what enabled you to eventually make that transition yourself. Well, one of the things I love about this podcast is I feel like it's so, why should artists have to reinvent the wheel? If the wheel is like, how do we run a business? How, or how do we run our practices, right? Which, which are these small businesses. And And so one of the things that I really appreciate about this podcast is just that that rather than everyone having to start from ground zero, you're kind of creating this foundation which people can draw from. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Yeah, and we've, I mean, we've thought a lot about why, I mean, Amanda and I both went to art school and, you know, graduated with a lot of questions about what it looked like practically to build a career in the arts. Um, And I also used to work in career development at an art school here in California. And so I think, you know, maybe one of the reasons it is so difficult to sort of, uh, or people have such a hard time answering that question of what it looks like to make a living as an artist. Um, What can artists practically do is because the answers are so varied and there really are infinite um, types of careers and career paths and even the skill sets, you know, even if an artist's work is really specialized, often these um, skills that are required to run your work like a small business are um, much more general. And so you're pulling from, like you said, bookkeeping, accounting. Um, it's it's so entrepreneurial. And so you kind of have to be a generalist in that sense of being able to manage all these different aspects um, and approach your practice from different angles. And um, because you were talking a little bit about skill sets, I'm wondering what were some of the things that you were learning through teaching about what might be required, you know, for you to make that transition or what, I don't know, some like things that were coming up uh, commonly in addition to the accounting and the finance piece um, that you were teaching with your students. I think, I mean, I feel like there's a few different things. One, I think one thing for me was accepting just the amount of administrative work that's part of being an artist. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that people really talk about that. But I would say that the admin side feels sometimes that it easily is like 50-50, right? Like just in terms of writing artist statements and getting your work documented and and filing and organizing and archiving that information and communicating Mm -hmm. with people and, and possibly working with galleries and all of that takes a lot of time. So that's like one thing I realized. And and perhaps, you know, the one thing that teaching really helped me with, though, is maybe the public speaking skill part of being an artist. Because as artists, when we teach, engaging our students in conversations and, and, and learning how to feel comfortable in that space, but also 
presenting work in a way that ignites students' curiosities, right? I think is like really an important part of teaching and, and it takes a lot of physical and emotional energy to do that. And it's a really, gen and I will say it's a super generous exchange. It's what I love most about teaching. And it's probably even why to this day, there is this like kind of public engagement part of my practice that I enjoy because of those relationships and because of that connection and um, exchange. Yeah, and I appreciate what you said about the balance between the admin and the studio work. It makes me think of conversations we've had recently even on the podcast. Uh, Amanda had created this really great illustration that we shared on social media around expectations versus reality of being a full-time artist. And on the expectation side, it's like, You'll just be making and then maybe selling your work. But the reality side um, is this pie chart with all of these other uh, responsibilities and tasks and, you know, things you don't expect. And I feel mm -hmm. like in art school, it's almost more like you're in a residency of some sort. Um, even if you're working your way through college, you have all this time in the studio and it can be kind of a wake up call on leaving and, you know, all of a sudden having to balance all of these other demands. And I feel like that can lead to a lot of self-doubt, especially for emerging artists to feel like oh, I'm not spending you know, all of my time in the studio. What is that? that mean for my life or career, but yeah, I just appreciate that, you know, you're reminding us the reality is that there really are all these other things and that is just part of sustaining your work as an artist. Yeah, I love thinking about the expectations versus the reality and really reflecting back on it. I mean, I think that like, I, I mean, I definitely remember getting out of graduate school and thinking, okay, I'm like gonna get a gallery, like, that, mm -hmm. that there was this list of things I would try to accomplish. And I think that the time by which I would accomplish any one of those things, we'll use getting a gallery by for, as an example, but everything just took so much longer than I anticipated. And so I do think that like patience is really important and resilience. I used to like actually talk with my students about when I was a kid in the 70s, there were these like kind of inflatable like clown, like this inflatable clown that was weighted at the bottom and you would punch it down and it would kind of come back up and you would like <laughs> punch it down and it would come back up. But I really feel like um, there's a lot of rejection. I like that's the other thing. Like yeah. who's going to like ch check the box of being an artist? Like nobody thinks about all the rejection that's involved. And ironically, mm. actually, even the rejection letters are are proof that you're working as an artist. So I think that sometimes we forget to, that there's some myths around having to make an income as an artist to like when you're doing your taxes that you have to always have this evidence of like making that at some point you absolutely have to have evidence of making income. But that's that is in fact just a myth. And as long as you like are trying and you have the documentation of how you're trying to get your work out in the world and that actually okay. includes those letters then mm -hmm. um, that that is legitimate evidence of the of the expenses you're putting into your practice and so um i think mm -hmm. that that's really really important and the other thing that that re reminds me of is that i think i became an even better advocate for myself once i left teaching full-time and was working solely as an artist because when you teach full-time, I think it's easy or even part-time perhaps, but when you're teaching, I was, you know, putting the money that I was making from teaching back into my studio practice. But when I was no longer teaching, then if 
I had to ask for fiscal support to realize a project from like in collaboration with an institution, or if I had to justify my the honorarium that I thought I deserved for a project, I felt empowered to do so because I was speaking from this perspective of really knowing what my expenses were, really mm -hmm. knowing what it was costing out of my pocket to pay for health insurance. Um, mm -hmm. And I knew what my overhead was. And I think that when we're supporting our practices through these other, other jobs that we all take on as artists, I think that sometimes we're not appropriately calculating what it costs to deliver the services that we do, right? So that's just another element of this of this uh, project in progress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate what you're um, saying about advocating for yourself and your work and having that be rooted in what your actual expenses are, what it actually costs to produce your work. Because I, th I think, and I don't, maybe this is an assumption, but, um, you know, if you're getting approached by these wonderful museums or institutions, then maybe there's an expectation that whatever they're offering is just, is what it is, you know, without realizing that you do have power as an artist to advocate for yourself and that maybe what they're presenting as an honorarium or a project stipend um, isn't aligned with what you're being asked to do or what's required of your work. So I think just realizing it feels like knowing your own, own expenses, your own needs uh, is really crucial. Yeah, and I think as artists, especially in the beginning, we're just so grateful for any morsel of an opportunity that I think that we forget mm -hmm. to advocate for ourselves. Mm -hmm. But I also mm -hmm. think that we historically, I think that artists by nature are really generous. And I think that there's a lot of giving of artworks to different auctions and benefits. And and I think that we we forget to sometimes articulate what our needs are. And, and the truth of the matter is, if an institution can't afford it, they will say so. But if you ask, then they will probably try to figure out how to meet you halfway or even, you know, fully. Yeah. I wanted to ask, because um, you've already been uh, touching on this a little bit, but what were some of the other misconceptions that either you had or that you've um, encountered students having around what it looks like to be a full-time artist um, versus what the reality has been? Um, and maybe how has that changed for you over the years? Yeah, I would say that I remember uh, in art school, having a professor really kind of talk about a daily practice. And I think that there are artists who have a daily practice. But I remember when I was teaching full time, I just thought, wow, this is like really hard or impossible. And so I think that there's some ideals that are laid out for us and uh, kind of these misconceptions. And, and I, I think that there's all types of ways in which art is made. And, and some people are going to like have a daily practice and go into their studio and, or they're going to have, you know, a sketchbook that's always like, you know, growing with, with content and, and thoughts and ideas. But I think the thing that I really realize in, in my reality is that when I was teaching full time, it, it wasn't necessarily possible to have a daily practice. And, mm -hmm. and, I found like it was most easy for me to have a practice when I made a commitment with someone else to deliver a project. And so I, I really recommend mm -hmm. that to artists. It's like, it, and I found that it was easiest when I was teaching full-time again to like 
set these deadlines around times when I knew I had a break in the teaching schedule, whether it was like a winter break or over the summer. And so then if it was a if I set a fall delivery deadline for a show or a project, I knew I had all summer to, to work on it. And so I think part, uh, like, or one thing I believe is really important is, is really just understanding the way you work best and how you can just best follow through. And for me, that way was like kind of making agreements with other people, because I think if it was just a contract with myself that I would, you know, have a body of work created by a certain point, I think that it would be, it sounds strange, but it would be easier to kind of like make excuses and maybe not meet that deadline in contrast to like when anybody else is involved, I felt like I, I knew I would follow through. And so I think mm -hmm. that that's like one really useful um, tip for people. And the other thing is that I, I think that there's, you know, there's all types of different makers. I have this, and there's all types of different ways to make work. And my friend, Alicia Johnson, she like talks about how um, she believes there's like kind of two types of artists. And she has this philosophy that some people are riggers and some people are designers. And I definitely am more of a rigor. Like there's certain things that I know I want to accomplish in a piece and I just kind of mm. hit the ground running. And I think if I had like kind of thought too methodically about the process, I might have not dived in, right? And whereas a designer, it's yeah. it's a little bit more a method methodological approach. Again, you can still, there's still room for accident and wonder and all these other things to like go off path, but it's a little, it's a little more systemic or there's a system at place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I think I'm a rigger. I'm quite certain of it. Actually. Really? I always, I always, I would have thought the opposite actually. Oh, That's really? So interesting. I yeah. Feel I feel like, like you're very, um, well, methodical, maybe more in terms of schedule, like showing up mm -hmm. to the studio every morning, like working, you know, around a structured time, but no, I'd love to hear I mean, I think my time is kind of based around my, I never know how to say it right, if it's a, like circadian rhythm, circadian rhythm. Mm. But the, I basically just follow my body clock. I wake up when I wake up and then when I feel like working, I'll start working. But my studio is also in my house. So it's like, you're very consistent. You know, I wander in when I'm ready to work or when I have a deadline, but I feel like I definitely need some kind of external deadline to push me forward. Someone else that I have to be, you know, they have a responsibility to deliver something to, um, but But you also, all of your collections know. are like self-determined deadlines. So this is well, so fascinating. I feel those like we're are usually, about each other. Those are usually based on like, okay, I need to make money right now. So I am setting a date sure. for a shop the external financial for when, pressure. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, it's very need based, but if I have if I have like a little financial cushion to take a break and I feel like I need a break, I'm like, I cannot create, I cannot force it. And I mean, if I consider rest as part of my practice, which I, I do to an extent, then I guess I would see myself showing up to my practice every day. But I, I know that like, I have to be able to check out of the studio. I have to step away from it. I have to let myself recover from burnout. I have to you know, fuel my, my soul and my, my relationships and my, my personal interests in order to like have some kind of inspiration to bring into the studio that I can then turn into something. But yeah, 
I don't know. What about you? Yeah, this has been very reassuring to hear because I, I feel like I'm more in the rigor category too. Um, but I'm primarily a painter and I feel like the language we used to talk about painting a lot of times revolves around a, like a painting practice. And, you know, it's something daily that you show up to. And I feel like I'm, I'm more deadline driven, kind of project motivated. And maybe it also has to do with having day jobs that have been more seasonal in the past. But I feel like my output has also been very seasonal. So it's... It's great to hear about uh, yeah these categories, different ways that artists are working. I did want to ask, how have your methods for sustaining your work evolved over the years, um, especially once you left teaching, if you wouldn't mind sharing the breakdown? Um, just in general, has it been through things like grants or commissions or selling work? What are the different types of income streams that you've built um, through your art practice over the years? I think initially grants were central to experimenting and taking risks and, and funding, mm. you know, ideas that I just, that I knew I needed to understand. And then over time, I guess I've been applying for less, less grants and now more income is being generated through the work itself, but also you know, visiting artist gigs and, and things, things like that. And once I stopped teaching, my work schedule definitely became more Monday through Friday, nine to five, but that also was kind of parallel to being a parent. As, and so I think that that changed the way I come to work every morning and, and the way I'm in this, this space. Yeah, that seems to be echoed in, uh, we've interviewed a number of artist parents and they've um, said similar things about how, you know, on having a child, it really like brought some real structure to their <laughs> life and their studio work. And it seems like that uh, has, is something that creates a lot of big shifts um, with a lot of people's work. Um, I still, however, like deadlines. I mean, I still really like a deadline is, is just the, it help, it helps focus my my practice i suppose in an important way mhm mm i'm also um interested in how your how your work is distributed across uh, other partners or collaborators that you work with um i know that you uh have uh, some people on your team uh, or you have a studio assistant I was wondering if you could talk about that and then maybe with some of the especially the project based work where you might be working yes. with well, I guess I can, I will separate these into two questions. Um, I'm interested in your project-based work, like working with institutions, what those collaborations are like, um, but also just on the day-to-day, -day, how do you kind of distribute your time and uh, what kind of supports you have? Yeah, I feel like I'm, strangely enough, over the pandemic, my studio practice feels like it's gotten busier. And one thing that's kind of interesting to me is that maybe... Three years ago, I had one studio manager, and now I have a studio director and a project manager, but then I also have two other full-time, you know, studio assistants. And and for for me, and then there's other people who who also help part-time. So I guess I, um, that's quite a team. That's amazing. Yeah, it is, it is a team and it is, it is really amazing. And, and sometimes I like to refer to it as like the brain trust cause it's, 
I, I really do love collaborating in the world with other institutions and, and in community, but I feel like I have a really lovely community in my studio. And I think that there's problem solving on technical issues that happens in a way that would be different if it was just me. And mm-hmm. um, I'm really grateful for those conversations. And I suppose that I'm trying to think of, I mean, I feel like every day is really poss- like often different in the studio, but with deadlines where we have more of a, this sounds so strange to talk about to me, to my ears, I, I, like right now I'm kind of dealing with like, like we count back dates on calendars to figure out by what time certain projects mm-hmm. need to be completed. Mm-hmm. And and it sounds surreal even to my own ears because, you know, three years ago it was, a, it was like radically different. And I honestly, it wasn't until I turned 50 where I thought, oh, I guess I'm really doing this. I mean, I, I think it was the first time where yeah. I thought, oh, I, I'm, I really am an artist and this is what I'm going to do with the mm. rest of my life. And I don't know why it took so long to come to that conclusion because it strikes me that it's something that nobody could really take that away from me. But mm-hmm. I've always, I guess, and I used to always tell uh, my studios, my studio director, who's been with me for about six years, I used to always say, well, if this doesn't work out, I can always, <laughs> I can always go back to teaching. You know, I've always had that, that, um, the backup plan, like the backup plan mm-hmm. to how I would support myself. And I suppose it still exists, but I, but I, one thing that's kind of funny about my backup plan is that I feel like when you teach part-time, it requires you to teach a lot, correct? Because you're not mm-hmm. really being paid as well for te- p- teaching part-time. Mm-hmm. And so I, and so when I would go through this scenario about, if worse came to, not worse came to worse, but if I needed to, I could like go back to teaching. Then I would eventually kind of talk myself through to the point that I realized that I just needed to work harder in the studio and make something else. And 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 if that could find a home in the world and generate some income, then that would, you know, um, alleviate what concern I had about not being able to make a living as an artist. But it's so strange because it really was like, and has been this like continual cycle of, wondering if it's possible to sustain this and and maybe I'm just starting to feel like it is but even even now with with some of the um extra help and and inquiries for projects I feel like I still I still feel like things could plateau (laughs) like I'm still like I don't know and I'm like doing a downward plateau for those of you who are like not able to see me. <laughs> I don't know. That's like, so it sounds so fatalistic. I'm like, and it's that funny though, because I'm also a very, uh, like I'm a pretty positive person um, or optimistic. Mm-hmm. Like I'm more, I try to be more hopeful. I was going to say you were describing a very familiar feeling. I mean, I feel like I am constantly, I mean, I, I have this loop in my head of these anxious thoughts of like, someone's going to take this away from me. So I'm going to have to go back and, and get a day job again. That And the day jobs that I had, had had previously in support of my practice were really, it was it was just so that I could launch my practice. And it's like, I don't want to go back, but also 
I've, I'm just constantly nervous that I'm not going to be able to make it. And even though having looked back on the last couple of years, especially and thought like, oh, wow, if my art business could survive like such unbelievably tumultuous times and like really like I should be able to be okay and like I should be able to have you know this set of, of skills and knowledge and and experience from my back pocket and my tool tool belt whatever like I should be able to have these as, as access for my life to continue finding ways to make it work regardless of circumstances but yeah I mean I doubt myself all the time <laughs> yeah it's so reassuring to hear this though because I feel like um other artists that we've interviewed have said the same and it makes me feel like okay maybe this is just a universal uh track that we all play in our heads that you know I don't know where why that is either but I, I wonder if it has to do with the fact that you know a creative career looks unlike any other and you're sort of you are sort of inventing your own way as you go along but I also feel like that combination of like optimism and pragmatism is also really, I don't know, central for artists. It's like, you know, the kind of spirit they bring to their work in the studio, like being able to envision things that haven't existed and then figure out the practical, you know, logistics of like how to bring that into reality and feels like that applies to creative careers uh, too. But it's, yeah, it's good to know. I mean whatever stage you're at it just seems like that's a sort of a constant dialogue and yet here you've been doing this for years and you know highly successful so it is clearly possible and this will continue to happen yeah I think that's like the thing that sort of I accept but it also bums me out because I thought I think that in my head it would just get easier at some point and Mm. uh, I realized that there's all always you know there's this vulnerability in the is part of being an artist and and making work and putting it out into the world and then I on the other side though I think we must be really stubborn too right because I I mean how like what brings us back from that vulnerability like why are we so like why Mm -hmm. why are we so resilient and and I know I'm really stubborn are you are your both of you stubborn yes Very much. I so. want to say no, I mean, but my partner's in the other room, so he'll quickly correct me if I do. Mine is not home, but I know. I mean, ever since I was a child, I've been labeled defiant, and I kind of am that person that, like, if you tell me I'm not going to do something, I'm like, watch me. It's like I I wasn't even interested before you told me I couldn't, and now I have to prove to all of us that I'm going to do it. And I think probably a lot of that is part of an artist's personality. Like, I think societally, we're told constantly, like, you can't do it, you're gonna starve, you're not gonna make it, you either need to come from wealth, or you need to be the most unbelievably prolific prolific person ever. And even then, you probably won't become famous until after you're gone. And your estate will be benefiting from your success after you're gone. But it's like, we have to say like, no, I don't subscribe to that. Like I can find a way to make it work. And I, I know that there are artists that find ways to make it work and, you know, I can, I can make it work my way. And yeah, I don't know. Nicole, are, are you? Yeah. I wanted to know, um, well, I had another question for Marie about, um, at what point you were uh, able to start, um, 
bringing people onto your team and what what was that role um, and then how did you determine you know when was the right moment to start to bring on um, some support I'm so glad you asked that question because it feels strange to talk about what the team looks like in this moment because it's just it has been a really long process when mm-hmm. I taught at Portland Community College I um, had a student in my class um, who uh, I thought would make an excellent studio assistant. And when when they were no longer in my class, I asked if they would work in my studio on Saturdays. And this was when I was teaching full-time. So like the sa- Saturday was like my going to be my main studio day. And I decided that I wasn't going to have them volunteer as a studio assistant. I wanted to pay them because I wanted to make myself accountable. And so I knew that I really needed to like, you know, acknowledge the exchange that was, was happening and that it was this work relationship. And Mm -hmm. so it started very simply with hiring somebody to maybe work three hours a week on a Saturday. And for me, that was really important because on Saturday morning, I probably would have rather been sleeping in, getting a cup of coffee with somebody like, Mm -hmm. and, and so it made it harder for me to get out of that commitment with myself. So there's a lot of self trickery in being an artist. (laughs) It's just like, you know, convince, like making yourself do these things through like, I don't know, all, like different means. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that was the beginning of like ex- experiencing like help in the, the studio. And then later I had a studio assistant who's still with me today. And she has like gone on to graduate school and she's come back uh, or she's worked for other people and she's now back in my studio but it was this great fit and and all I could afford is to have somebody helping me part-time. But then there would be times in the studio where the deadlines would kind of like my need for extra hands would swell. And so at some point came to me and she said that she was um, gonna look for another part-time job because she needed to make more money. And I just thought, oh my gosh, if I can't you know, call on her when I really need her, then I'm. this is gonna be cha- a challenging way to run my studio. And so my partner and I, we talked and decided that we would figure out different jobs, not just a studio job, but like different ways that like we could hire her and we would hire her full time. And, and so that was really like, and she was so good and she is so good. Right. And so I I knew I absolutely needed to figure out how I could retain her. And so she was my first um, full-time studio person and it and it just grew out of like knowing it was such a good fit that I would really need to retain her to have her be full time. And then pretty quickly, I think it became clear that there wasn't really a need for her to do these extra things that we envisioned paying her for, because then having that help was maybe generating more income and or more projects that led to more income. And so it was an investment that in many ways um, paid paid for itself. And so that was that was really the beginning. And and like I said, it's only been in the last couple of years where I was able to hire like a, a second person full time and then some additional additional help. And and I think the thing that's really important to me, even though I don't really have a recipe for it, but I I want the choices that I make in the studio to be sustainable. Like I really value the relationships I have with people in my studio. And so I don't take uh, inviting somebody to 
be here lightly because I would like it to be a relationship that's, you know, sustainable through time. Yeah, I feel like that's such an important thing to mention. And I really appreciate that you said that because I feel like so oftentimes, I don't know, bringing on help can, I feel like so often um, the thought around outsourcing or growing a team or getting help can be a very practical choice, but it's also important to recognize that like you're bringing another person into your life and practice and like you have a responsibility to them to be a good boss and for you know to provide guidance and and to support them as an employee but also as uh you know you want that relationship to be healthy and to have good communication and and trust and and know that you know they can share in your vision of what you're creating. And I'm curious what, if you would have any advice or thoughts around if someone were to bring in help for the first time or like when you know is the right time to outsource something or say like, okay, I'm I'm done doing this particular task. This is something I need someone else to do. If it's simply like a, a capacity thing or, or if it's a little bit more specific. I think there's probably a lot of variables that would go into that go into the decision. And of course, it's pretty subjective, too. But I think, you know, if you ever have the opportunity to work with somebody who might start part like just part time or occasionally and you realize it's a good, good fit, like that's one thing that I think is really important. And it's um, more nerve wracking to hire people if you haven't been able to like have an exchange with them. At least that's my experience. Although I have found some really lovely people who help in the studio that way, but it takes like a lot more energy to locate them. Right. And I guess the knowing thing, it's just, I, wow, I almost feel like, wow, you'll know, you'll know if you, you'll know if you know, but like, maybe it's like just part of it might be a question of capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, are, are you able to do what you want to accomplish in your studio or, and, and is it how you want to grow your studio practice? And then, and, and do you have the fiscal resources to sustain it? And it's a, that's like, that's, those are like really, I don't know. I don't think there's any easy answers to any of of those, those things. Right. But it, because it is a financial, I guess it's, there's a, you know, there's a financial commitment if you have somebody who works for you full time. Full time, And I, one thing that's so interesting, and I'd be curious to know what other artists in, in on your program have said in the past regarding this, but, you know, I think in the beginning when, when I hired somebody to help me in my studio, I was, you know, paying them an hourly fee, but I wasn't like uh, getting workman's comp insurance. And I didn't have to worry about health insurance and all these other things. And I just Mm -hmm. think that there, there is a place where all of a sudden the tables kind of flip and, and that like when you have people coming into your studio, actually like most insurance agents will tell you that like technically like they need to become employees. They're not, what is that? They're not. Oh, like an independent contractor or something. Yeah. Like I think that that's like one thing that's really interesting for Mm. us as artists. I think when we like initially hire people, we think that we're hiring somebody as an independent contractor, but technically when somebody is going into your space, it's kind of my understanding that 
unless they hold insurance for themselves, con yeah, like self-employment contractor insurance, then like technically you're employing them more like an employee, not like a contractor. And I don't think that that, I don't think that that language is very clear for artists. And it's something that I'm mm -hmm. still trying to understand. But I think if you talk to an accountant um, who has some um, expertise in, in employment issues, they'd probably guide a person on that. It's yeah. like all the stuff that honestly, like, I don't really want to, I mean, I think it's good to know, but I also, yeah. um, in some ways I, I almost like think, oh, don't say this on, don't say this on the podcast because <laughs> I don't want people to like, stre like stress out about that. Right. Cause I think yeah. that, I don't, I don't know where that line happens. I yeah, I don't know if this if we've um, had this conversation on the podcast yet. Um, we, I, we've definitely talked with artists that have brought on assistants or grown their team. Um, and I think in a lot of cases seem to start part time moving into full time. Um, but I don't know if we've really gotten into the uh, like technicalities of that. Um, it did make me think a little bit. I don't know how relevant this actually is, but just in how um, some of these uh, like business structures or like the way you have to kind of professionalize your work changes over time or maybe with the scale or scope of projects or as you're expanding your team. And um, I remember we had interviewed um, an artist, uh, Wendy Redstar, a while back, and she had said something interesting about um, setting up her business as I think an S-Core where she was employed mm -hmm by her art business and I thought that yeah. was interesting because you know there's I think many artists are just we're like sole proprietors independent contractors uh some choose to go like the LLC route uh but that was sort of a new thing that um yeah just kind of knowing like what structures are out there and available to artists and like translating some of these business requirements when you're running a small business or managing a team of people um and figuring out what's expected um because it is a sort of a different different environment but yeah there are these similarities to running any other small business so we'll have to ask that question more often um for artists that work with teams yeah yeah i am curious to know as you started to expand your team um what other roles were you starting to fill and then how did that shift um what you were able to focus on as the artist so I used to have a studio manager and now that person is my studio director and my, and then I've added a project manager and then the project manager in some, in some ways, their plate of projects that are being managed in the studio has grown so significantly that they have, a, I would say a lot less time with their like hands involved in in the role of mate, like helping fabricate things. And so there's also some other assistants who've, who've been added. And one of the things that's interesting right now is that because things have, have grown, I feel like I actually need a, a studio manager to help with some more of the administrative details. And my studio director is dealing a lot with all kind of email communication with collaborators and inquiries, as well as dealing a lot more focusing on the archive. And I guess that's the one area that I, I think part of it is just 
comes with age and part of it that is being a mid-career like a mid-career artist and 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 making sure that the work is sort of properly archived and in an art an archive system so we use artwork archive and um oh great we love them (laughs) they've been our past podcast sponsors so they're great great relationship (laughs) happy to plug them here Yes, me too, because I feel like for artists, like my studio manager had done a lot of research on, you know, what program was the best fit for us. And I feel like they're like, there's a reasonable annual fee and then, and it's a pretty easy system to, to use. It's very user-friendly. So we've, we've enjoyed Mm -hmm. using it. And I think that the archive, we've always like now, maybe for the past five for six years, used Artwork Archive for, you know, archiving works related to new projects. But I think the challenge has been like all like projects prior to six years, right? So like kind of getting all of that information in the database has been time consuming. And also just figuring out like numbering systems and all kinds of things that we didn't do when we started using Artwork Archive. So now considering how to apply a numeric system um, that will help us with how work is organized. Yeah, that's so interesting. What are some, because I think a lot of times we'll hear, you know, we, I guess uh, Nicole and I are very familiar with some of the struggles of emerging artists and kind of those first early steps. But I'm curious, what are you learning as you're in like the, you know, mid-career level what are what are things that you're learning in your practice that you're like, well, I was not expecting to be struggling with this at this point, but or like, here's the thing I have to face or navigate and kind of, you know, if we want to be artists for our whole lives, there are going to be a lot of different phases and things we'll have to navigate. And, you know, we're, we're navigating quite quite a few <laughs> right now. But um, I'm very interested in, in what you're learning in your practice at this stage and, and how you're how you're kind of working through those those different thoughts and, and problems or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I would say that mid career artist storage issues are real. And so that's like one element. I, I just I have some singular projects that take up a lot of space and you know I think there's a lot of artists who have to destroy that that work like if you have work and you just don't know how to house it anymore you have to destroy it or give it away or who knows what happens to it but I think that that's one thing that I'm aware of is just like the space I need both to make the work I want to make but the space I need to store the work I've made and of course, renting space is expensive. I feel like I live in probably one of a, a town where um, there's still relatively decent rents for artists, but it's still expensive. And then the art, the archive part is like is huge. I, I actually am not a person who's very good at organizing things. Like even my files on my computer, like I am not a person who's that well organized. I mean, things are saved with a name, but they're like that, like figuring out how to find it when I'm trying to recall things is very uh, challenging. So I think that archive for me is um, the, it's the project that I'm really kind of trying to wrap my head around. And part of it came about through a project that actually just opened, but I 
have a print retrospective up at the University of San Diego right now. And in preparation for that show, I really had to understand like the archive of prints that I've made to, to date, but nothing was really organized in my artwork archive file where I could track those prints, the edition numbers, where those editions went, which collectors they went to, mm -hmm. um, et cetera. So it's been, it's an ongoing project. It's further ahead this year than it was, you know, the year before. And I have hired, I actually did apply for a grant um, that allowed me to hire somebody to help me with that project. And, and I'm grateful for it, but I also see how it's an expense that, you know, at the moment, I feel like I, I can direct some resources to it, but I also could see where it's, it's an expense that's, you know, going to be difficult for artists to, to have. And, and I guess like that kind mm -hmm. of then directs me to conversations about best practices, but like, I think that they're perhaps the Jim Mitchell Foundation has, um, I do believe they might have a published document on, on how to go about artists legacy planning mm -hmm. and maybe archives as a part of that. But I haven't delved deep enough into it. And I think it is an important conversation um, or maybe it's, it's conversation, but it's also an important topic for artists to, to think about because I think it's, it would be easier if we could be addressing it from the very beginning instead of like kind of retroactively um, trying mm -hmm. to figure it out. I don't really want to spend my time like going backward. I want to like just keep making, like moving forward and, and making the work I, I'm hoping to make, but continue Amanda. Oh, I was going to say it. It makes me think about how I feel like um, so often we're, we're so focused on the project that is like the most urgent and the most immediate that it's hard to plan long-term. And I mean, it's, things like that become very obvious and issues when we think of things like climate change, where it's like, oh man, surely we're not facing this until it's too late or like, you know, too, too in your face. But also we, I think it's, it's easy to think about that in our lives as well. It's like, you know, maybe I don't think about my personal health until something forces me to, or maybe I don't think about planning for my future until I have something that I, something I have to handle that I didn't plan for. And I think you know, again, as artists, if we want to have this career for our lives, we have to think about the whole lifetime of it. And that includes the lifetime of our work. And so often these objects will outlive us. And, you know, if you if you want to think about where those things will go and, and what that legacy will be, and it's it's a hard thing to think about, but it also is an important thing to think about. Like we're creating these objects, what, what happens to them? What, what do they become? beyond us. <laughs> I wanted to know, because you've exhibited your work extensively and received some really wonderful fellowship opportunities, um, and just curious um, how you would describe, or if there have been any uh, like pivotal moments in your career that you feel, um, looking back, what, what stands out to you as either being some kind of a turning point or, you know, giving you a boost of support when it was really needed? It's funny, because one award I received was an anonymous was a woman mm. grant for fellowship. And I remember I was like with my husband in a coffee shop in New York. And I think I was like kind of stressed about money, like really worrying. I can't even remember what projects were happening, but I got this call that was just this phone call out of the blue. And I picked up the phone and they like 
said that I had been nominated and received this grant. And I, I remember it being, it felt, felt life-changing, but I also think part of it is just to know that peers, to get that affirmation or confirmation mm. that your work is of importance or significance from your peers, I think is really important. And I think for myself as an artist who, while I was in New York on a vacation maybe, or doing some work um, as a person who's largely been based in the Pacific Northwest um, to feel like I was being seen in this like kind of larger um, region, New York in particular, I thought it was like, that felt very significant and important to me. And then, you know, more recently, I have to say that I started being represented by the Mark Strauss Gallery probably three or four years ago, but my first show was uh, like two Octobers ago. And, and um, that also feels like it has been a really significant um, and pivotal moment for me as well. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I, because you mentioned, um, be, this is a bit of a shift, but uh, you mentioned being based in Portland and having traveled and obviously you've shown your work in many other places. But I'm just curious to know a little more about your experience and relationship to living and working in Portland and your experience with either finding opportunity locally versus beyond where you live and work um, or just what, uh, you know, what your relationship to that place has been. Yeah. You know, I feel like Portland is a pretty supportive town for artists. And I think one of the reasons for that is we have the Regional Arts and Culture Council. And uh, we also have the Oregon Arts Commission. But I think uh, RAC uh, has, is just supportive agency that's in Multnomah County. And, and I know that a lot of um, people don't necessarily live in communities where there is a grant granting organization um, mm -hmm. that's uh, supportive of uh, both the, the arts community and artists. And so um, I feel like early on, I was like applying for RAC RAC grants and and have received support from them, as well as the um, Oregon Arts Commission. And then we also have some other um, organizations here, or at least one that I want to talk about, which is the Hallie Ford uh, Family Foundation. And they do an annual, they have an annual artist fellowship um, mm. that significantly support it. Not only is does it the fellowship support artists, but once you become a Halley Ford Artist Fellow, um, there's a bunch of like services and a support network that they continue to offer artists who are past fellows. And so I think that that's been a, a lifeline for me and other artists um, in this region. Are there any um, experiences um, or aspects of your work and practice that we haven't talked about yet that you would want to make sure to share? Um, I feel like there's so many other directions we could go and so much more we can dive into, um, but just curious if there's anything that's top of mind um, that you want to make sure to cover. You know, I guess the, the one thing that I would say for me that I think helped me really early on with my um, practice as an artist was applying for grants. And I think that when the work 
maybe wasn't commercially viable or that just didn't necessarily have a, um, well, actually, never mind. I'll just like go back. Yeah, like when the work wasn't necessarily commercially viable or just didn't have like a following, I'm not quite sure what the, the right language is, but mm -hmm. but I feel like applying for grants and fellowships were really like, that was like what allowed me to do ambitious projects. I think I would have like still done those projects, but I was able to do them at a different scale. And so I would encourage artists to, to really apply for funding. Yeah, that's good advice. And um, when you were, when you were applying to these grants, were you looking mostly locally or were there other resources um, either that you used or that you have directed students to? Um, I mean, there's definitely uh, are a lot of platforms out there for researching grants and um, we can source those and include some of those in our show notes too. But um, just wondering if there's anything in particular that you've found useful. Yeah, I think most of them were local, but I've definitely applied to um, different kind of, I don't know if you call them competitions, but like the Seattle Art Museum has something called the Betty Bowen Award. So I remember mm -hmm. applying to that. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely like, I'm kind of mindful of what's being advertised. I will say that I think maybe for younger artists, it might be valuable to, um, apply for things where you have to pay a small fee, but I'm not really a person who believes in, in paying, paying that fee. Um, and so you have to really consider which awards are worth doing that and whether, and I think that like, you can kind of. Um, figure this out if you read the application process closely, but are you paying for a fee that's helping with the administrative details of the grant, or are you paying a fee that's just kind of going into an institution's um, coffers, right? And yeah. so trying to yeah. like understand the difference between those two things, I think is really important. Um, or just funding the grant itself. It seems like there's a lot of those, like you pay your application fee and it's just like they're crowdsourcing the grant money and then pocketing the rest. Exactly. So you kind of want to make sure that it's like worth your, you know, worth your time or, and money really. And, and I think part of it too is understanding that there's some great awards out there that are going to be super competitive and at, at like creative capital grants, for example. And I think mm -hmm. if you apply I think no matter what you apply for, though, if you feel, um, I let, I always feel best when I'm applying for something and I feel like I have a strong application when I'm passionate about what I've, what I'm pitching and when I really believe it. And when I, yeah. I, I know in my, my gut that it is a project that deserves funding, not to say that they'll believe it, but like, I actually have to have that, mm -hmm. that, um, sensation. And so I think that that's also important too. Yeah, that feels like it ties back into that um, self-advocacy from the very beginning of our conversation, just really believing in what you do first and foremost, and then, yeah, being able to advocate for that. Let's see, I feel like we're uh, probably, we want to be mindful of your time. So I suppose we should probably wrap up our conversation soon. But is there anything else that we haven't uh, covered that you want to make sure to talk about? Oh, I realized that we didn't really talk about the 
maybe this doesn't really go into it, but we didn't really talk about the collaborative aspect of my practice. And I don't know if that's a business. I don't know if that's, if that um, kind of fits into beyond the studio questions or not. <laughs> I mean, we could definitely, we could definitely talk about it. I know, I know at least speaking as an artist myself who definitely didn't anticipate collaboration as being part of my practice when I first started. And like now it clearly very much is a part of my practice. Um, I am curious. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. We often end up wearing hats that we don't anticipate and, and building relationships, collaborations and connections that we also don't anticipate. Right. Well, I will echo you, Amanda, and say that I did not anticipate working collaboratively, let alone hosting sewing circles for almost 20 years now. And oh, I, love I started the sewing circles when um, just email was kind of a new tool. There was no social media. And I was working on a project while I was on sabbatical. And um, there was all this like stitching involved. And I realized that I was not going to have a social life unless I, I maybe, you know, am, like invited a friend over to stitch and have lunch. And, and so that, that's how I kind of started. And then I realized in, in making the, that invitation, I would say to a friend, well, you don't have to have any sewing experience and you can come go as you wish and I'll feed you, which is still like kind of what I say today. But one of the things that happened is I found that when our eyes were diverted and we were working with something as familiar as like, you know, cloth or like a, a, shard of a wool blanket that um, stories just sort of float. And I would learn all kinds of things about um, like the, the friend at the table that I had never known before. And I was kind of surprised by the depth of the exchange. Mm -hmm. And so I um, decided that I would, would kind of take that, what I was learning and kind of uh, invite a broader community to share in conversation and stitches at my studio, which at that time was in my house and people came and, and again, it was kind of, and, and people were allowed to, or encouraged to bring friends. And so all of a sudden, you know, this kind of intergenerational cross-disciplinary and, you know, cross-cultural sewing circles were kind of formed. And I think at first the sewing circles started as thinking of, of like a barn raising where many hands make light work. And um, I'm going to have, like roll up my sleeves and I'll help you raise your barn. And, and so there would be this exchange. And then maybe a year later, I, I realized that what I most enjoyed about the sewing circles is that they weren't really a means to an end, but what was created was like, I would set the table and then what happened around that table took on a life of its own. It was created by everybody sharing that space. And so that's kind of what I think of the sewing circles as being like today. And then because there's no pressure to speak, but people do share so much, um, I feel like that's kind of something that, like, those stories become kind of imprinted on that cloth as well as people's stitches, which, um, again, are kind of like this extension of our, our, you know, our hands, our bodies, the cadence of our voices. And then the stitches themselves are almost, they're so unique to each participant that it is like, you know, a thumbprint or a signature. And so that is how they've, that's how they've evolved. And I think the one thing that I also didn't really anticipate, but that 
happens as a result of um, working in community is that oftentimes then where those pieces are collaborated on, then there's a desire to see them come back into the community because uh, people want to see where the call and response, they want to see that, I don't know, I, I hate to call it like this final, the final result, because I feel like it's, it's something that is both an object, but it's also embodies like an experience, right? So if you were a participant, then like what you bring is this embodied experience of like ex the, the work itself and seeing yourself in it. And, and for me, it's very important to like, for, for those of us who've not necessarily seen our ancestors or rela relations um, in works and museums, then to like open up that space and kind of equalize that space and, and, and bring other voices into it is really important to me as well. I'm really glad we opened up to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, selfishly, as a, a fiber artist, I really found that very deep, deeply moving to hear. And I, I feel like you made me realize something I didn't notice before, because I feel like a lot of times I'll get into like a long conversation with a friend or family member while I'm sitting and sewing and, you know, talk to them on the phone or or times where I've been able to sit and sew with someone else who also is working on some kind of uh, handicraft. It really, it has led to really like extremely intimate conversations where I'm like, I revealed some deep stuff about myself that I did not expect to discuss. Like I thought we were just going to sit and sew and like maybe talk about business, talk about life. But like now I'm talking about my issues with my whatever, like, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, all right. Yeah, I really appreciate you expressing that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because, of course, it's kind of, it's a gift that we can be in this conversation right now using Zoom and and then that this can be edited and become a podcast and kind of be amplified glo globally or and, and that it can have this audience that's so large. But I do think one of the things that's so um, important about the the connection of of stitching at a shared table is that you know right now our 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 phones and our technology mediates so many of our relationships that we don't really get to connect in 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 the flesh and and that like and we don't know our neighbors as well as we used to i think actually maybe the pandemic has changed that a little bit because i think mm -hmm. there that we were forced to rely even more on our our neighbors but um i think it's very important and and so yes getting together and sharing space and sharing a table and and um and and getting to know somebody um in a way that you might not have known before is really a part of what connects us right yeah oh my gosh that's such a beautiful note uh to end on and before we go though um, maria i wanted to ask where people can find your work um, where they can see what you're doing or maybe where they can join your sewing circles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, people can find my work on my website, which is mariewattstudio.com. And I will leave it, I guess I will leave it at that. But if anybody was to like email hey. or my, I guess my Instagram handle too is mariewattstudio. So there's, there's two, there's two ways. And, and um, through either of those, one could reach out and, get connected on our very occasional newsletter perfect love it and we'll include links to those uh with our show notes thank you yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you, you so, so much, much. <laughs> <laughs> thank you 
that's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Don't forget, if you're a fan of the podcast, please leave us a rating and review, submit to our listener spotlight, and if you want to support the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation, head over to our website, beyondthe.studio. 